You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Lillian Cunningham, a reporter with the Washington Post and the host of the Washington Post's Field Trip podcast. Field Trip is a five-part audio series that delves into the messy past and uncertain future of America's national parks. And here joining me today is the director of the National Park Service, Chuck Sams. Director Sams, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Lillian. It's good to see you again. It is great to see you again, too. We actually talked not too long ago for the podcast, and um, we'll dive right in. One of the things that you told me when we last spoke was that climate change is one of the biggest threats facing the national parks today. So I want to start by talking about a bit of what we're seeing across the country right now, massive heat waves, uh, floods, smoke from wildfires. Um, You are in charge of protecting some of the most special landscapes in America, some of our most prized natural resources. What is the Park Service doing today to adapt to these realities we're seeing around us? And, you know, frankly, I'm also wondering whether you think Americans need to be prepared to lose some of the forests and shorelines and wildlife and trees that the Park Service was created to protect. Thanks, Lillian. You know, it is our existential threat to all Americans across, whether it's the National Park Service or lands and climate across the the entire United States. We in the National Park Service address this through a strategy on climate change in four integrated focus areas, science, mitigation, adaptation, and communication. The National Park Service uses available science to understand climate change effects in parks to inform our decision-making on how we're gonna be resilient and how we can be adaptive. The National Parks Green Parks Plan and the Climate Friendly Parks Program guide parks in conducting greenhouse gas emissions inventories and implementing strategies to lessen operational carbon footprints. Extreme warm temperature implications for parks happen at Glacier National Park, at Denali, where we have loss of snow and ice, at Swaro and Joshua Tree, where they're having major effects on plants and animal communities, at Big Bend National Park in Death Valley, where we're very concerned about visitor safety and their enjoyment. Exasperating conditions conducive to large wildfires at places like Rocky Mountain, at Lassen Volcanoes, and Santa Monica Mountain National, National Recreation Area all burned significantly in recent years, and we've all seen those effects. We are working to figure out wildfires having serious implications on regional air and water quality, visitor access and safety, and of course, protection of cultural resources. We've seen all of these firsthand across the United States. For the last five years living in the Pacific Northwest, we've seen wildfires rage across both all types of public lands, federal, state, county, and we've seen the effects of the air quality in that. And now we're seeing that due to the fires that are happening in Canada, where we are actually helping our friends in Canada by sending wildland firefighters. Climate change is contributing to the long-term eradication of the American West with serious implications on our water supplies and water-based recreations as evidenced down at Lake Mead and Glen Canyon and Curacate National Recreation Area. Climate change is driving sea level rise across ocean warming and acidification along the coast and implications for land loss at Jean Lapierre, 
coral reefs in Biscayne National Parks and intertidal communities in the Olympic, National, uh, Olympic Peninsula. You know, these are threatening our people and, and threatening multiple flora and fauna. We are working very, very hard on our adaptation and resiliency across. We're able to do that with the Great American Outdoors Fund in particular, along with support from bipartisan infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act. And we're seeing some of those effects of the change that we're making. Most recently, I was out at Mount Rainier National Park looking at Stevens Creek Road Project, where we're building avalanche chutes that have had the avalanches caused by climate change to ensure people's safety. We're looking at coastal impacts along the tidal basin seawalls at Everglades here in Washington, D.C., and their effects of what they're doing. And we're really combating this head on because of our longstanding commitment to America to protect and preserve these natural places for all Americans to enjoy. Well, you mentioned the road in Mount Rainier, and speaking of roads, I mean, just last year we saw how massive flooding in Yellowstone uh, damaged a number of roads throughout that national park. I know several years ago that melting permafrost also damaged um, a road up in Denali National Park in Alaska. I'm curious what the, the vision is within the national park system for how these built environments within the parks because you know as visitors we sometimes forget it but these parks have a lot of infrastructure in them but how did these built environments within the parks need to change for the 21st century and should there sometimes you know, in some cases be less infrastructure perhaps absolutely we're looking at this in, in, in a complete and comprehensive way 424 national parks 85 million acres of land we have over 75,000 pieces of built infrastructure, everything from roads to bridges, to visitor centers, to water treatment plants. And we're having to figure out how we do this differently. Now, mind you, the last major uh, improvements that were placed into national parks happened in between 1955 and 1965. And we are now seeing that we have an opportunity to use the best technology, the best engineering, the best science available to us to look at how we're building our parks more resilient. And in some places, as you pointed out, where we need to demolish or get rid of certain structures that are no longer of use to us so that the natural environment can take those back over. But we are looking at that and how we grade and, and choose projects, not just on the business model, but on their resiliency model and how we can make ensure that these structures that we are putting in place will be here between 50 and 75 more years. So uh, I have sort of a philosophical climate change question for you, which is that, you know, as we look across the American landscape, scan landscape we're running into some uh, thorny questions about um, areas where there's potential to help our transition to a clean energy future, um, but that would incur some harm to natural places we love. So that could be solar panel farms that could damage wildlife habitat. It could be mining for uh, critical minerals. I'm curious as you know, one of the people in the government who's charged with conservation and protecting these special landscapes, how you respond to people who also care about the environment, but who say that, you know, some of the damage that would incur to our lands is worth the trade-off in this sort of bigger battle against climate change. You know, we in the Biden-Harris administration are committed to renewable energies, and that's an important aspect of how we're going to be able to combat climate change. 
but recognizing that in the siting of these facilities, we have to be very careful on how we're protecting both flora and fauna. The National Park Service is completely dedicated to that. As a federal servant uh, and, and part of this administration, I'm committed to ensuring that and using the best science available as we do these sightings and recognizing that there are trade-offs from time to time and we'll have to mitigate for those in a multitude of ways to ensure that we continue to protect the flora and fauna, that we open up corridor routes for wildlife to get through and never forget those things as we're sighting these facilities. Listen, I'm from the Pacific Northwest where uh, I had previously sat on the Northwest Power and Conservation Council where we dealt with this on a daily basis. There are trade-offs from time to time, but we have to do what's best for flora and fauna and for human life. And we can do that and forge that forward because we have more information now than we've ever had before. And we're bringing together both traditional ecological knowledge from our tribal folks and indigenous knowledge from tribes across the United States, along with some of the best Western science we've been able to ever have to actually figure this out in a better way. So let's actually talk about another threat to the national parks right now, which in some cases is people and how much we love these parks. Um, visitation at many of the national parks is very high right now. Um, and some people would say too high. I mean, we recently saw in the news some photographs of uh, four hour long sort of backups of cars trying to get into Yellowstone National Park. A number of the big national parks are now experimenting with timed entry systems. Um, and there are some visitors who are, are frustrated by this. At the same time, of course, part of your mission in the Park Service is to protect fragile ecosystems and these habitats for wildlife. So how do you weigh those competing pressures of uh, public access and protecting these wild places? And um, I mean, what do you think needs to change into the future about the way public access uh, works in these parks? Well, first and foremost, I want to continue to encourage my fellow Americans and our foreign visitors to come out and enjoy our national parks. And remember, while there are 63 national parks, we have 424 total national parks, memorials and monuments, national heritage areas. And so we have a diversity of opportunities for people to come out and enjoy the outdoors. We also have urban settings for people to come and see uh, and learn about their history. But the most important part, and it's essential, is your trip planning, especially to our well-known parks. Making sure that you uh, look at nps.gov, you download our app and provide details of what to see and do, where to find food and lodging and reservations if necessary. But as we say, you should uh, plan like a ranger. In other words, make sure that your trip is planned out very well in advance and you understand what we're, we're doing there. We have some of the best social scientists in, in the United States who are working on our visitor use management plans across the entire national park system. And we understand that we want folks to come in and have the most enjoyable time that they can in the park, while also continuing to preserve our history and protect both flora and fauna. That being said, we also want the American people to be cognizant and to learn from that and to plan appropriately. Our top eight most visited parks receive 25% of all of our visitation in, in the system. And so we understand why people want to go to those top places like Yellowstone and Yosemite um, and Grand Tetons and others at Grand Canyon. But in doing so, when we have that congestion is looking at the time frame for the entire year and the years and the portions in which the park is open to our plan accordingly. We're also trying to make sure and update our app, our app as we use it so that eventually we'll be able to help people look at congestion and traffic both in at the park and in and around the area so they can better plan their time in the park. Caring for parks is a shared responsibility. 
National Park Service is responsible for stewarding these lands, and we ask our visitors to respect and protect those areas for public enjoyment today so that future generations, seven generations from now, will also be able to enjoy the parks. In 2021, more than 297 million people have come to our parks. 20.5 billion in gateway communities was contributed into those parks. So we understand we have the economic uh, engines that we are around with our community. And all we're asking is for the American people to really be cognizant and good visitors in the park system. So uh, changing gears a little bit, one thing that we talked about um, when we spoke previously for the Field Trip podcast was about your personal path to becoming the first Native American person to lead the National Park Service. And you were very open with me when we talked before about how you both personally um, have long loved the national parks, um, but have also long felt like the government could do a better job of partnering with tribes on land management. So I would love to hear more about um, what you have been doing so far to, to try to improve that relationship. Absolutely. You know, uh, shortly after coming in, the administration and Secretary Holland put through both executive order and secretarial order on how we're supposed to be consulting with tribes. And in the secretary's case, it was about how we do co-management and co-stewardship with tribes, which I was very excited about. I spent a good portion of my career outside of the parks really trying to talk to the Department of Interior and the National Park Service in the particular on how we can do co-management and co-stewardship. For thousands of years, tribal native people on this land have managed these landscapes. And while not every tribal member may have been an agriculturalist, every tribal member had been a horticulturist, which means that we were able to not just survive on this landscape, we were able to thrive on the landscape. And like all humans across the world, we manipulated our environment to suit our needs. So whether that is the use of traditional fire in order to, to bring in and propagate trees and new plants to create meadows so that um, animals can come through there so that you can hunt them from time to time in order to meet your food needs. All of those ideas of how we've stewarded these lands for thousands of years can be brought to bear. Again, bringing indigenous knowledge to the table for the first time, being able to respect tribes, both of their treaty rights and those that they may have retained under executive order as a federal response, trust responsibility that we have with tribes. We've been doing that across the service. We have nearly 80 different projects happening right now with tribes in some form of co-stewardship or co-management in our park system. We've been outreaching the tribes of where they're at, asking them to help us look at how we can better steward these places we love. Many tribes, and I can't say all because I don't know all tribes, but I know my own in particular, is that we were charged with stewardship when we were created as human beings. And we as human beings have that responsibility regardless. And so being able to bring that knowledge to the forefront with our fellow Americans, we can all steward these places in a way that we ensure that, again, they're going to be here for seven generations from now. So a, a lot of what you're talking about is, um, as you say, co-management, co-stewardship, which could look like um, partnering with a tribe on particular aspects. Um, for example, in Yosemite, we saw how indigenous knowledge is playing a huge role um, as they work on prescribed burns to fight wildfires um, in Yosemite. But I'm curious, you know, you mentioned how uh, these were all indigenous lands and these were ecosystems that were carefully managed by tribes for thousands of years. Would you like to see a day, um, and I don't know how soon, but would you like to at some point see a day where a big park like 
glacier or the Grand Canyon is fully managed by Native people again. You know, these parks were set aside by the U.S. Congress and by the President um, through the Antiquities Act for all Americans. That being said, tribes play an integral part in how we manage these landscapes, both within the park and in the boundaries. Many tribes have rights that extend beyond the park, with, and also in partnership with a number of states and counties. We are also encouraged by the Land and Water Conservation Fund, hoping to ensure that funding goes to tribes so that they set up some of their own national parks. We've worked very positive relationships, by example, with the Navajo Nation and their own national park, being able to trade ideas and concepts with our rangers so that we can export and import both the good, bad, and different and learn from each other so that we're more successful in managing these large landscapes. And so in working with tribes, I think the number of them have already, if I look at the 55 million acres that tribes have already retained from themselves, nearly 90% of it is in some type of conservation value. And so they're already stewarding those lands many times in the traditions that they've had and being able to learn from that, expand those lands where they can to consolidate their landscapes within their reservations and they may wish to turn those into parks. We stand ready to partner with them, to learn from them and to share our own experiences in co-managing such spaces. So you mentioned how the national parks are, of course, you know, have been set aside for the benefit of all Americans. Um, but we also know that just historically, uh, both within the staffing of the National Park Service and even the visitation to a lot of these national parks, um, people of color are underrepresented. Why is that? And also, since you've been director, is there any, full, any meaningful change that you have been helping to implement to change that? You know, that's great, because 10 years ago, the National Park Service was more diverse than we are today, and we recognize that. We're committed to identifying, identifying proactive strategies to hire, welcome, promote, and retain a workforce that reflects the diversity of our nation. We want to ensure the stories we tell in the parks that all Americans can see themselves within the park itself to show the diversity of who we are as a nation. Uh, we are only stronger by our diversity. It's very interesting to me how uh, we look at nature and we recognize that the major component of nature for its sustainability is to have a very diverse and rich ecosystem. It's only humans who have divided themselves and put themselves into different categories for whatever purposes. But we also recognize with the Park Service, we must have a diverse workforce so that we reflect who we are as Americans. And we are doing that through youth programs, internships, military hiring programs. Uh, and we've just recently hired over 30 recruiters for the first time to go out and meet people where we're at. Traditionally, we've always hired our staff through, through the local community and we'll continue to do so. But we haven't been, a, been out uh, in the past being able to work with historically black colleges and universities, working in, in native community colleges, working and going out into trade schools and bringing in a different and diverse workforce, which we're committed to doing so that we can fill out our ranks so these people can just, so we have people who are preserving and protecting these areas. So I have uh, just a little fun uh, lightning round of questions for you, given it's like summer travel season, national parks. Okay, so th these are just either or questions. Um, the first one is, would you rather camp all by yourself or with 20 friends? All by myself. Interesting. Okay. Would you rather go on a long hike or a long canoe trip? A long hike. 
And what about, would you rather catch sunrise or sunset? Ooh, I love a good sunrise. <laughs> Me too, okay. Uh, and then the last one, would you rather spend a week in one of our desert national parks or a week in the Arctic? You know, my mother's people are from the desert and I'm from the high plateau, so I would love to experience the Arctic. Nice, okay, well, our final episode that came out today is about Gates of the Arctic. Um, so, ah, I agree. <laughs> um, the final question that I did wanna ask you though is that the last time we talked, uh, we spent some time uh, talking about the meaning of wilderness. And you said something that has really stuck with me, which was that as you've traveled the country and talked to a number of tribes, you know, most tribes don't have a word for wilderness, you said, and if they do, it's called home. And that idea has really, um, has really stuck with me. And so I'd love to just broadly ask you now what you think wilderness means and should mean just more broadly to the American people today. Wilderness as a concept really is a European concept and it was used in a way, especially in children's fairy tales, if you look at the children's fairy tales that we have to scare people from it. And um, what we recognize now as people went into the wild and Western expansionism uh, was more about discovery. And yet had they just asked the people who had been here for thousands of years, we could have helped them uh, understand the natural environment in there and how it, it, the ecosystems function. By example, you know, uh, when Lewis and Clark came out west, um, the tribes uh, had beat them many times because they were further ahead on the trail uh, announcing their coming. And people knew well in advance that, when, uh, that the expedition was on its way and the expedition of discovery. That being said is having folks understand that wilderness um, by itself still is a, needs to be a managed landscape. We have to be able to protect the flora and fauna in it as native people have done for thousands of years. Uh, for far too long in many of our wilderness areas, we were not working uh, with the underbrush that uh, in the undercarriage of the forests, and we've seen large conflagrations across the United States. Um, and right now we're being much more proactive by using traditional firing practices that have been on this landscape for thousands of years so that we can ensure the survivability of trees and also to bring back flora and fauna that feed uh, other animals and species so that we have a much more healthy ecosystem. And so for, our, for my fellow Americans, it's understanding that these wildernesses are home to not only people, but to many multiple species. And we have a reciprocating relationship with those species that we're responsible for stewarding. Thanks. Well, I think that seems like a, a great place to end this conversation because we, we are unfortunately just about out of time. But thank you so much for taking the time to be here with me, uh, Director Sands. And uh, to talk with you again has been a real pleasure. It's been my pleasure. It's nice to see you again, Lillian. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.